0: We're continuing in Mark today, so if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, we'll be in Mark chapter 12. And we'll finish that chapter today, but the, uh, what we're talking about in some senses is humility. And I think if you think about Christianity and you know, what's the mark of the Christian, what makes a Christian in the Bible the things that they talk about, one is forgiveness, so strong that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. That's strong. Another is humility. This idea that God resists the proud, but he lifts up or exalts the humble. And I, I, I hope as we go through today and we look at what we're doing today, it's on humility. Particularly how it can sneak in and we can kind of put pride back into our lives too often. Here's the deal. You're not the runner. Jesus is. And, and I want to develop that with you. You know, this weekend, I don't know about you. I was a competitive runner. I love running. You wouldn't know it looking at me, but, but here's the thing. Some amazing races going on this weekend. You guys ever hear of the Ineos 159? This billionaire decided that he was going to try and and make it so that somebody could run an under-two-hour marathon. That's, like, amazing. It's 434 miles. And yesterday, in Vienna, totally flat course, perfect weather, laser-printed course so the guy wouldn't take a single step out of bounds, take the shortest route he could, 15 pacers cycling through, everything just perfect. He did it. 159.40. 159.40. Sweet. The guy's name, I, I'm not going to pronounce it right, but it's, it's Eliud Kanoche or Kinogi. Thank you. Do you who, that person. No, they, amazing. One of the most amazing marathon runners there is. He did it. You will never do that. <laughs> I can't even run one mile that fast. 26.2. And, and it was, it won't be Olympic record or low record or anything like that because, because it wasn't an official race. There were no other runners. It was just him with tons of a billionaire's help making it happen. Okay. So ho- hold on to that. There's another race that's still going on right now and it's just as remarkable and amazing. It's called the Moab 200 and it's, it's called the 200, but it's 240 miles, 240 miles of continuous running. That's like takes people three, four days. They started and they're still going. It's just remarkable. These ultra runners, and I can run one mile. This is 240 in the desert, up and down mountains in Utah. Going on right now, and the winner's going to be amazing. Anybody who would run that and finish, I couldn't do it. It's been kind of overshadowed this year by this celebrity kind of ultra runner guy. His name is David Goggins. I don't know if you've heard of him. Ex-Navy SEAL runs ultra marathons, his whole thing. And he goes and has a big, big thing where he, he he says, you got to embrace the pain and you can be invincible. So when I finally learned to embrace and go in and get there, I became invincible and you can too. You can be the best you if you would just follow my guidelines, you see. And he's out there and he's a fantastic runner And, and he's, and he's, and he's doing it. How to become, one of his little things is how to become the toughest man alive. I know if it's going to be cut toughest women alive, it should be the same, right? How to be tough. You can find videos them on YouTube. Watch out, they're pretty profanity-laced. So not for your kids. But it's, I, dude, totally winsome, amazing. I buy in. I want to be the best me. Okay, I bring these two up because it highlights What I think our text is pushing us toward today. Either you stand amazed at the incredible wonder of what a single person achieved, a person you will never be and and can only wonder and trust in their achievement, or, or primarily you, you, you think you can be that person too. That, that's a, it's, they're, they're not, they're not a both and. And to me, this is what humility is for the Christian, a reality that we buy into, that that I can't, what I know is out of reach... Otherwise, you're on a journey, and maybe you're on a journey, you think, today, of keeping control, of keeping power. We talked a little bit about it last week, of advancing, getting the techniques and tips to keep you in power. And you use Jesus to help you get higher, faster, whatever. And to me, that's what I'm saying is faking humility. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is doing it all, but but he's my power source, but it's me. It's a big deal. We started seeing it last week. Humility not as something we work on, but as a reality. Humility means we come and are amazed at Jesus, not striving to be Jesus, not holding ourselves inside like we have any hope except Jesus. And if you can live there, if you join us in this, I'll tell you the mundane becomes marvelous because he does use us. Okay, so let's take a look. We're going to start here in chapter 12, verse 13, with some questions and answers. So follow along with me in your Bibles or put it on the screen. Verse 13, Mark chapter 12. And they sent him. They, in this case, is the chief priests and elders who we saw last week. They're against Jesus. They sent him to him, some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him and talk So Jesus is about to go to the cross, right? Here we are in our story of Mark, the presentation of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he became human, he came and he's going to the cross to shed his blood for our sins, and here he is in Jerusalem. He's about to go. This is our Savior, right? He's shedding his own blood for people who are rebels and sinners. He heals the sick, he makes the blind see. He raises the dead. And the Jewish leadership, especially the religious leadership, is not for him. So here are the Pharisees. They're the really religious guys. And the Herodians, they're the party that likes Herod in power, but they're connected to the Pharisees. Herod is the king, the ruler, so they're kind of more politically connected there. They want to trap Jesus. And so this whole set, the next two pieces, they're, they're trap scenarios. They're trying to trap Jesus into saying something unwise or wrong or usable to bring him down. That's the point of what they're trying to do. Okay, so here we go. And 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 they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and <laughs> do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? <laughs> oh, Jesus, you're so fine. You're so true. You don't bow to peer pressure or externals. That's what they're saying, right? You teach the truth. Yep. That's right. And, and they're right. So tell us, they say, pay taxes to Caesar or not. And they say, well, that sounds like a really good question. Like, what's the authority to pay taxes? And I, I got a question about that. And like that. No, no, that's not what they're doing. They're trying to trap him, right? Cause if he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then Caesar considers himself a God. You're going to go idolatry? You're going to go worship some god? They can get him. If he says, oh no, uh, you should not, because he's considering himself a god, don't buy into that authority structure. Don't do it. Then it's like, oh, hey, we are the soldiers? Because the Roman soldiers are here somewhere. Take this man away. Trap, right? No matter what he says. Great question. Idolatry or rebellion? Which one, Jesus? Pick one. But it says, knowing their hypocrisy, other ways says his malice that they're against him. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius is a day's wage. It's coin. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness or an inscription is, is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We marvel too, right? I mean, just think about it for a minute. What a great answer. (laughs) Why is it a great answer? Because it's a total warshrack test. Do you know those? The inkbot things? It's like you put an inkbot on the screen, and, and you say, okay, look at that, what is it? And whatever's already in your mind is what you see. I see a flying eagle. I see a big blob of ink. So so that's what he's doing, right? This isn't a doctrinal thing. This isn't a, oh, let's answer. I'm ready to go. Should I pay my taxes or not? That is not what's going on here. Jesus is being slippery on purpose. Why? Because he's the runner. If you think he's not the runner, if you think you need to be the runner, then you're after. Oh, I need to know what to do. There's another checkbox. Do I pay taxes? What do I do? Do do? No, 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 no. Wait. See what they're doing. They can't pin him. He doesn't give an answer. It's incredible and frustrating. If you want to be the runner, what am I supposed to do, Jesus? Just tell me. You're not telling me. Did he say you should pay your taxes? Well, kind of. Give to Caesar what Caesar, and he's on the coin. But, 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 but did he say, no, don't, don't do it because God is over Caesar and, and everything's God's, even the coin. Yeah. He didn't say. I'm not telling you is what he says. He does it in an incredible, marvelous, in marvelous way if he's the runner because you're not stopping him. It's like a tackler coming at Jesus. What does he do? He sidesteps. The tackler goes to the ground. Yay, Jesus. We love it when it's our quarterback. Russell Wilson does that really well. So so, so there it is, right? Should you pay taxes? Maybe. Should you put your child on a schedule? Maybe. Should you give 10% to the church? Maybe. Should you vote for this candidate? Maybe. Just tell me already. That's where we go, right? We want people to tell us. But but that's not what this is showing us. Jesus Christ, our amazing runner, our incredible finisher, our amazing God who loved and saves us, they can't put him down. It's not about your running better. It's about, should I trust this Jesus? Oh, there's the question, right? Yes. He escapes the traps that will trap you. He sees hypocrisy. He knows. He knows. Okay, that's pretty fun. Let's look at the next one. So in verse 18, it says, The Sadducees came to Jesus. I just love that name. It's so fun to call them sad. But they're not sad. These guys were rich. These were the wealthy, wealthy dudes. They, they had connections and political connections. And they, they, they man, they thought that wealth was a mark of God's favor. And they were very politically connected and yet had a religious group there. They say there's no resurrection. Your kids had given that. This defined them. They didn't think there was an afterlife. They had. They were searching the scriptures. They weren't throwing away the Bible. They studied the Bible and they came out saying, "You know what? We don't think there's a resurrection." From reading the Old Testament. So they asked him a question, saying, "Verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man brother's man's brother dies and leaves a wife." But leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, we see this and go like, this seems like a really nonsensical question, but whoa, man, there's a doozy. Married to one, died, went through the whole extended family. Poor woman. It sounds really weird to us, but that's what they did to protect the, the, the unit, to protect the woman, to protect the family. There was a requirement for provision in this society, not an oddity. But... Jesus, in the resurrection, (laughs) like there is one. Whose will she be? See how ridiculous it is to even believe in the resurrection? How could you answer that? Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This is a put-down, right? Jesus goes, You're wrong. All the thinking, all the position, all the thing, you're just wrong. And then in the resurrection, there's not marriage. This is a bogus question. But you know what? While we're at it, there is a resurrection. Because he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Okay, don't get confused. It's a big thing for them in in Hebrew. It's a big way of how they thought about it, right? That if if you would speak it differently, if the person was dead says, I was the God of Abraham, but he died. I was that. He said, no, it doesn't say that. It's present tense. I am. God doesn't say I am unless it's a continuing thing. I am still. And for him to be the God of Abraham, Abraham must still have some existence somewhere. Where might that be? It's going to be that he he didn't die. Resurrection happens. He's God forever of Abraham. They're not dead, you see. They're going to rise. Again, we get on that question, but we missed the point. What's the point? He said it twice, and he said it strongly, and it's a slap in the face. You are quite wrong. Got him, Jesus. (laughs) He's my runner. That's because he knows, right? And, And you and I, here's the thing. Don't miss this. We want to put them in a box over there and they say, oh yeah, those stupid people over there who believe something dumb about the Bible, about the Hebrew Scriptures, and they're wrong. And then they face Jesus and Jesus says, you're quite wrong. Guess what? You're quite wrong. And when I say you're quite wrong, I'm using my finger to point at you. Guess what I'm pointing back at me with? Four more. I'm quite wrong. We read the Bible. We do the very best we can. We interpret the Scriptures. And guess what? Some of our positions are going to be what? Wrong. That's, how could you ever say you're going to be wrong? Because I'm not the runner. I'm not the one who's perfect. Jesus is. That, that's the truth I'm going to hold on and never let go to, right? That this idea is the definition of what humility is. A Contra, by the way, if you're a big fan of G.K. Chesterton, he wrote this whole little quote on, but he's wrong. We are humble about our ability To know truth. As as interpreters, right? We stand with full voice. Don't get me wrong. We stand with full voice and locked arms around the solas. You know, the solas of the Reformation. Christ alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. Scripture alone. For the glory of God alone. We call it our core. We absolutely hold on to it with full conviction. But there are a lot of other truths I really believe. From this scripture, and I in humility know I'm not the runner. I'll be wrong. Is there a pre rapture? How many days were was creation? Where did the wives for Cain and Abel come from? Should women wear head coverings? When does life start exactly? When is conception? It's not that these are debatable things like we shouldn't have an answer or we shouldn't be convinced that our interpretation of Scripture and go to the Lord and say, this is how I live because I believe it's true. It's not that. It's the humility of knowing I could be wrong. There are lots of things that I could be wrong on. And before the Lord, I say, amen. My hope is in Jesus There's truth that I can't be wrong on or the whole thing's a bunch of baloney. That's all I know about Jesus in the Bible. Who Jesus is. How I'm saved. The solace. So there's the truth I won't let go of. We we live this way. We talk about it a lot. We talk about our core. We do these things. But what we do when we're talking about our core, we're talking about the essential humility of our body to say, I'm going to live with someone else who thinks very differently than I do about interpretation of the Bible. We're both holding the Bible highly, but we might come out a different spot, huh? No, you can't do that. Well, the Sadducees did, and Jesus says to them, you are quite wrong. Do you see what Jesus is showing to you and me? You are quite wrong. Applies to the human race as we read the Bible and we make positions. And what we really need is humility, trusting the one who is right. Who's he? Jesus. He's the runner. I mean, I, I close my mind to things that that, that I, I think are true in Scripture, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be as strong as I can on them. But there are lots of things we're not sure about. It's possible that you're not always right. Okay, so have convictions, but have them with humility because the Lord lifts up the humble, and he's the runner. Humility's the theme. We don't stand against Jesus. So these questions and answers highlight that for us as these guys are trying to take Jesus down. In the wonder of wonders, you can't do it. <laughs> he's the perfect one. And then you have the next piece, knowing and doing. These all kind of flow together. I know, I agree. One of the scribes came. They came up and heard Jesus, right? They heard these guys discussing. He heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well. Okay, so here's a guy that's not trying to take down Jesus. He asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? This is a great question. All these rules, Jesus. Which one's the most important? And so they're thinking, man, this Jesus, he's thinking, he's smart. I want to know what he thinks is the most important one. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It's heavy, huh? Clear? True. True. Not a trap question. This is what Jesus says is the very best commandment. And he gives two of them, and he's done it before. You know this. Love God, love people. And not just, a, a, hey, love God like a throwaway. Love him with everything you have. Love him with every iota of your soul. And love other people, not just kind of love him a little bit. Love him like you love yourself. The scribe said to him, hey, teacher, you're right. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than a whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This pathway of really loving, that's more than all the other stuff you can do. It's good, right? All the stuff we do to keep ourselves good, that's the comment by the scribe. Jesus loves it. Jesus affirms it. Yes, it is true. And when Jesus, verse 34, saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, where are we going to get? Jesus loves it, what, right? And what does he say? Focus in, focus in on this. I I don't want you to miss it. Focus in, what does he actually say? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean exactly? Not far as in still a little ways? Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Yes, you've got it. This is the purpose of the law. This is the beautiful wonder of it. This gets you close. If you see that this is what's required, you go after this with all your heart. You love the Lord with all your heart. You do it. You love people with everything you have with, oh, just like you love yourself. Do it. See that this is what's required. Not, not that you try. Jesus is saying is there's no try in this passage. You see that this is the standard, not keep yourself okay, but love with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and not try and be kind to your neighbor, but love your neighbor like you love yourself. This is another way to put this. Jesus is saying being humble is not far from the kingdom of God. Why? Cause if you don't just throw that away, but you say that really is the standard. It's really high. Then what it's highlighting for you is that there's a huge gap. He doesn't take away the standard. You see, you and I are, are, aren't the runner. I will never be the guy who runs a sub two hour marathon. If I ran one right now, if I, I'm sorry. If I shuffled through one right now, I could do it in five hours maybe. Nah, give me six. Jesus isn't saying, just run. He's saying the kingdom is perfection, perfect love that you don't have. And to recognize that is to be near the kingdom. Because the Lord lifts up the humble. You see, your need is to realize you aren't buying into the hype of you becoming the marathon champion you're needing a substitute, you're needing an actual winner. And, and and look, Jesus says, let me point something out to you while, while we're here. So and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Quotes the Psalms, and David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And we read that, and we go, I just don't get it. So what's the next passage? Connect it. You're really near the kingdom of God if you be humble and you see that you can't, but you see the wonder of the of the of the love. And now that you're humble, let me ask you, the the, the David, that great king. Why did he call his son his Lord? Oh, the son of David, the forever king. He's looking at you. He's going to cross for you. He is the runner. He is the perfect lover of you and of all humanity. He does love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he's here right now. Jesus, as he's looking at them, points say, yeah, you're not far and And look, I'm here. He's the one. So this is kind of a simple thing. Okay, back up with me. You're not the runner. Jesus is. Our lives are one of humility. We receive Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't appreciate running. We don't think love is beautiful. I think it's fantastic. I want to do it. It's not that we don't stay out there and try and stay fit. But to somehow break the connection between it and us being saved. Because we need a Savior, the one who actually accomplished what we never will, and then unites us to him forever, that gives us his righteousness, that doesn't make us our own. This is not a popular approach. We, we don't want to be wrong. I don't want to go through this. to actually just said, maybe I'm wrong. He pointed at me and said I was wrong. I don't like that. I'm pointing at me, too. It's humbling, right? I don't want to be humbled. I want everyone to acknowledge my greatness. Look at the great years of faithfulness that I've done at the church. Look at the great things I've done for the Lord. Look at my missionary trip to China. Look at the things I've done. Come, look, let me pull out for you my good works. As soon as I do that, guess what they become? Bad works. Why? I'm boasting about them to you. What's boasting? That's another word for... Pride. Look at my great work for God. It's a way to say I'm running the race, the race of keeping this law. Instead of really running the race, what's really running the race? The real race is to keep our eyes on Jesus, to stay humbled. And and it comes here right at the end again. Just one more little piece. I know we're almost done, but I want you to see this piece because it pulls in. We can't see is our problem. Accomplishments we can see, but we can't see motives, and therefore we can't really even see accomplishments. Here, look. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Right? So, so you get how it fits in, right? Do you see it? They do great things, but they're not really great because of their motives. Watch out! These guys over here, these lawyers, these religious lawyers, these people who, who, who dice the scriptures, they, they, they like approval of people. They like the best seats, they like the places of honor, they like their accomplishers, they like making long prayers, but they don't really care. By the way, this isn't a statement of don't be like them, but really love people. This is a statement of watch out. Motives are hidden. There's no hope in anyone but Jesus. As he's saying it, there's no hope in anyone but me is what he's here talking. Jesus is talking. We're blind. We can't see. Our vision is off. We call bad good and good bad. We can't tell what real works are, and yet we try and call people doing what we think is good. Look at how great that person is. The only unmitigated good is Jesus. He sees. He sees the heart. His spirit works in us. We really do good works. I know you do. They're wonderful to God. But he might be the only one who sees them. Why do I say that? And he sat down opposite the treasurer and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put two small copper coins in, which make a penny. You know what a penny is, right? It's the thing you throw away now. used to be you could buy something with a penny. And some people probably remember when you could. But you can't buy anything for a penny anymore. Mostly I tell the cashier gal to keep it. I don't want it. Give it to someone else. I feel so good about myself. I just donated a penny to the next cashier person. <laughs> Cause it's worthless. And he said, called his disciples over, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Get that? All those who are contributing to the, many rich people have come by and given tons of, aren't they good? For they contributed all of them out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Guess who saw it? Not the disciples, not the people around, nobody but one who saw it. Jesus saw it. This is not a call to go judge giving based on income. This is a statement that God actually does see what goes on, even when it looks like nothing. Really, God is in the small stuff, right? God's in the stuff that says, "In gratitude, I just want to serve. I know I'm not the runner. I know I'm not the marathoner. I know I'm not the one who who runs the race. Jesus ran it for me, but but you know what? All to the dishes. I'll stack the chairs. I'll give the quarter. I'll spend the precious time of my life in small ways, unseen ways, because time is precious. You have a very limited time on earth, and and you're giving it, and you're saying, I want to give it. Why do I want to give it? Because I just love my runner. No one has to see it. That birth in you, that's good works. Okay, so I know what's going to happen now is that after church, which is just in a few minutes, everyone's going to stay and stack the chairs. No. That would be the the thing, right? To say, I want everybody to see my good stuff that I do. What it means is that the mundane things of your life are used by God. Everything you do, if what you're doing is trusting the runner, then your life is about trusting the runner. The things that come out of you are about the spirit using you as you trust the runner. That the, the fruit of the spirit are about peace, joy, peace, patience, kind, all these things that come out of you. They're not even your fruit and no one necessarily even sees it, but I know who sees it. Who? Jesus does. So today, let's, let's, let's stop there. There's two run, two runners today. The one does something you could never ever do. It's simply amazing. And it's it's a neat picture, I believe, of our incredible king who ran the race absolutely perfectly, who has done it, and it is finished. He doesn't say, now you try. I'll help you with training. He says, trust me. I've got you all the way through. The other runner wants to make you great, and he is great. He's a great runner. But this way of thinking about this great runner is he's a motivational coach to make you run better. To convince you that you indeed can do mighty and great things to present yourself such before God. And this, to me, my counsel to you as a pastor, my speaking to you, is that it's a dead end. It's fake humility. It will lead you nowhere. It will not accomplish what you think it will. Even though you follow a marvelous athlete, to, ex- to exceed and ex- excel as a means of personal advancement in heaven is foolish. It's going to go astray. You're going to break because it's really about pride. Because everybody falls short. We all sin. We all die. Everyone in this room does. No one loves God like they have to. No one loves others like the law says. And to say just do it is true and a lie. Humility is staying humbled. It is our mark because we have been humbled by looking at the wonder of the only perfect one who has ever lived. And he loves us. You're forgiven because Jesus Christ paid it all. Receive it, will you? Let's pray.